This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's always a pleasure to be back here uh, with you to talk about important issues to the disability community, especially uh, around children, um, which is, of course, my, uh, uh, my passion. Um, I, I'm going to go through some uh, more, I'm really going to talk a little bit more about the disease and how we will think about equity framework, not only from a local standpoint, but how I want to give you a little bit of a history, um, one-year-old history on how CDC and others really came to this equity framework. So you have an understanding of where it is and really to be able to advocate for your own populations and understanding how the federal government thinks about these issues. And if I have time at the end, I will try to talk a little bit about um, the vaccines and um, what's going on with those uh, pediatric and adult considerations. So we'll go through these. um, And uh, of course, you'll have these slides available to look at later. So just as disclosure, I am on a DSMB, a data safety monitoring board for a Pfizer non-COVID vaccine trial. Um, And the objectives today are to understand the epidemiology and natural history of COVID-19 with an equity lens. So then to identify health equity considerations in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. Now, when I submitted these slides, um, uh, this was data as of the end of January. And unfortunately, these numbers have only gotten worse. We've today reached over 30 million cases. You can see that we are just coming down from a big surge. It was a terrible surge, but we are not yet down even below um, the level that we saw in September. The, The closest we've come to is the middle of October level. So we're still not out of the woods yet. Even though we're better, we have to be very careful. And uh, of course, the deaths have continued as well. And as of today, uh, we are seeing over um, 540,000 deaths in the US. Um, so it's taken a terrible toll across many populations. Now, what we tell, let me spoke, focus a little bit on uh, what's going on with kids and then um, I will talk about uh, uh, social vulnerability uh, overall. This is an article or two articles, one written by Evan Anderson and his colleagues, as well as an MMWR from CDC, pointing out people keep asking, well, why are vaccines and why are interventions important for children? They don't get as sick as adults do. Um, And we'll talk about that in a bit. But if you look at this table, you can see that COVID-19 accounts for, at this point now, over 260 deaths in children with a hospitalization rate that is about 20 per 100,000 children. Where you compare that to other vaccine preventable diseases, it's much higher in terms of deaths or hospitalizations than all of these other diseases such as varicella, rubella, hepatitis A, rotavirus, and influenza for which we already have vaccines for children. So you could argue that first of all, we don't wanna see any hospitalizations and deaths if they can be avoided. Um, and vaccine and other efforts for children will help with that. But we also know that this disease does take an equivalent, if not higher toll as other vaccine preventable diseases before vaccines were ready for them. Um, So when you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics website, and if anybody's interested, that's a great website to go to, it's aap.org. There's a lot of COVID guidance and resources there, but this is again, when I submitted my slides, over a month ago, now we have over 3 million children uh, who've had uh, COVID infection reported, um, and they represent 
up, up to 20% of all total state tests um, uh, and uh, hospitalizations uh, are fortunately rare, more rare in children than they are in adults. So children were about one, uh, one to 3% of total reported hospitalizations. So not a high number, fortunately, but again, we wanna avoid as many as possible. And at this point, uh, about 260 children have now died from COVID um, around the US, New York City and Guam, uh, including and in, in Puerto Rico as well. So it is a, uh, it, these are more death, deaths than we see, for example, every year from influenza. When you look at the number, the incidence, that is new cases by age group, you can see that the five to 17 year olds and the zero to four year olds have the lowest incidence. Uh, but we also know that not everybody gets tested and we know that children are less likely to be symptomatic from COVID disease. So uh, when you adjust the infection rates by under detection, uh, you can see that actually five to 17 year olds have a pretty high rate of infection. It's just that they tend to be less symptomatic, but we still see that the rates fortunately in the zero to four year olds are still uh, pretty low. And interestingly enough, the highest age group for infection is the 18 to 49 year olds. And these are people who tend again, not to be as sick as the over 65 year olds. So we do worry about this population, not only for their own health, but because they can serve as uh, additional sources of transmission um, in the US. So let's talk a little bit. Now we've got a, a spectrum there of disease. Let's talk about our social determinants of health and what do those mean? Um, well, um, you know, there are many different definitions and I'm sure, unfortunately, I wasn't able to join earlier, but I'm sure you talked a lot about that before. I want to put it in the framework of this COVID issue. Um, these are conditions in places where people live, learn, work and play that affect health risks. And what we know about social determinants is that they are more likely to predict your life expectancy and your overall health by 60%. There are 60% of your overall health indicators compared to medical interventions, genetics, um, and other um, medical traditional approaches that we take. These are things such as economic stability, education, social and community context, health and healthcare, housing and a neighborhood, and the built environment. And we are recognizing more and more that these social determinants play much more of a role uh, in your own health and the health of your communities than whether or not you have a provider um, or adequate healthcare, although those are important, they are not the only factors. So there is a social vulnerability index that the CDC has used quite a bit, and there's quite a bit of publications. Uh, there have been a, quite a number of publications around this area, and you can see the uh, link at the bottom to this information at the CDC website. And this was developed by the CDC some years ago before COVID to identify communities that need support before, during, and after public health emergencies. This is a measure of social determinations of health using US census data. So it's not perfect, but it is a pretty decent way to track vulnerability by social determinants of health in the US population as a whole. And this uh, data ranks each county and census tract. Um, and there are 3000 counties in the US. And uh, I have to say, I don't know how many census tracts there are, uh, but there's probably more than 3000. Um, on 15 social vulnerability factors and groups them into these four related themes of socioeconomics, housing composition and disability, representation of racial and ethnic minority groups, and housing and transportation. 
And an example of how you could use this is looking at those 15 factors and tracking them by, uh, by uh, census tract and county. And you can see based on the SVI index, the social vulnerability index overall on the left in the blue, as you can see how different parts of the country are ranked with blue having the highest vulnerability and white having the lowest vulnerability. And then you can overlay that the number of COVID cases per 100,000 residents, and you see that they track actually very, very well. So we know that social vulnerability um, can predict COVID. Um, this is, but going back to my HIV uh, research and therapy and intervention days, we know that racial and ethnic minorities had higher risks. And I was really, um, uh, it was hard for me to talk about that because race and ethnicity in and of, of itself is not a risk. It's what comes with, people who are racial and ethnic minorities and some of the social vulnerabilities that they may experience. So we really need to put the focus on the vulnerability aspects that can be fixed and that are really the issue. And it's not what the color of one's skin is or what one's culture is. It's about what they have access to in their community. So I really think this SVI approach is a really good one to look at objective factors that can be dealt with. Uh, social vulnerability, for example, for COVID as a hotspot, what, there's one study that was done last June using the social vulnerability index to examine associations between vulnerability and, and detection of COVID. And these were very similar to the map I just showed you. They tried to do that overlay. And what they did in, in, in addition is they looked at counties with the highest social vulnerability index. And um, these were also, as you saw on the map, the highest at risk for COVID hotspots. But then they looked further and they found that the highest risk, 15 times higher here, all counties had a 2.4 um, risk uh, when you compared highest versus lowest social vulnerability. But the highest risk areas were non-metropolitan areas, followed by medium and small metropolitan areas, and then large metropolitan areas. And if you look even further, you can see that higher percent of racial and ethnic minority residents, uh, higher percent of housing structures with greater than 10 units, and higher percent of households with more people than rooms also had risks. And everything uh, to the right of this dotted line means a higher risk. And you can see that among those risks, non-metropolitan areas for, some, for racial and ethnic minorities were highest. Um, as well as for people who had, there were more households members than, that with pe more people in households than rooms. So these are very good markers to try to understand where the vulnerabilities are so that those families can be targeted for interventions. And again, uh, when you look then, people in the highest quartile of vulnerability were also the most likely to have a high incidence of COVID-19. You can see this is the highest risk group and as the risk went down, there were less uh, COVID cases. Um, and then looking at independently at hospitalizations, you see that residents in low-income areas, age um, in five-year units as you went up uh, was a risk, obesity was a risk, uh, the type of insurance you had, and race and ethnicity, again, was another risk. And this is primarily because of the vulnerability of those populations. So what are those vulnerabilities? Well. There are many, but this is just a snapshot, and there's a paper there that I'm, I'm citing, such as poverty, frontline jobs, um, that is people who have no choice 
uh, for, to take other jobs, uh, crowded living spaces, reliance on crowded public transportation, the um, uh, no access to good food so that people living in food deserts or swamps, food swamps, inadequate insurance coverage. And what these uh, lead to are limited job and economic security, jobs with lack of adequate PPE, where uh, areas where social distancing is impossible, no access to healthy food and therefore exacerbation of underlying comorbid conditions and self-rationing of healthcare. So we can see how these really interact with medical conditions, um, including disabilities, to make people at higher risk. And of course, we know the data around uninsured um, by race and ethnicity, for example, and we know that our racial and ethnic minorities do have higher rates of, under, of underinsured or un, uninsurability um, in the United States. So what are additional considerations needed for people with disability during the COVID-19 outbreak? And I list a few here. Actions need to be taken to ensure that people with disability can always access healthcare services and public health information that they require, including during the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, and people with disability may be at greater risk of contracting COVID-19 for a number of reasons, including barriers to implementing basic hygiene measures, uh, depending on the disability. Um, and that is not just their own inability uh, to access these, but the, uh, the availability of measures to reach hand basins or sinks, for example, um, uh, or, or, or having a, an aid to help with um, adequate hygiene, hand hygiene. Difficulty in enacting social distancing because there may be additional support needs, or more importantly, if their people are institutionalized, they may not have adequate distancing available. The need to touch things to obtain information from the environment or for physical support can actually put people at higher risk of accessing, um, being, uh, 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 touching uh, surfaces or individuals that have disease, and then also the inability then to come back to adequate hand hygiene. And again, barriers to accessing public health information are important. Now, in addition, uh, depending on underlying health conditions, people with disability may be at greater risk of developing more severe cases of COVID if they become infected. And this may be because COVID-19 may exacerbate existing health conditions, particularly those related to respiratory function, immune system function, heart disease or diabetes that may be comorbidities with a disability. Barriers to accessing healthcare, as we talked about before, uh, people who, with a disability who may disproportionately be impacted because of serious disruptions to their normal services. We know that services have not been easy to obtain even in the best of all situations. And with the COVID epidemic, there may be more restrictions. And then barriers experienced by people with disabilities um, can be addressed, but key, stakehold, key stakeholders like yourselves really need to be involved to understand what those might be. Now, I want to uh, show you that there is a really nice resource here, um, the CDC Resources for People with Disabilities. I'm sure that Lucy and others can provide other resources as well, but this is a really good place to just get some basic FAQs, uh, questions answered, links to other resources, more information about social vulnerability indices and how those can be helpful in advocating for your populations. So what can be done? 
about um, disabilities um, and what has been done so far. Well, uh, to halt the pandemic in particular, uh, we need to connect people with resources to isolate themselves uh, who are isolated and, to, and, and who need to be isolated. That is getting them access to good, healthy food. You know, we need to make sure that people maintain uh, their physical strength in order to be able to combat um, their comorbid conditions if they have them or just to remain healthy and uh, safe. We need to make sure they have adequate and appropriate cleaning supplies and equipment. And of course, quarantining hotels is, for example, another uh, uh, effort that has been made over time. Now, low barrier community testing and rapid response is important just overall. Uh, free COVID-19 testing has been offered in this country, uh, but people don't always have access to getting to these locations. How do they get transportation to be tested? Are there testing sites nearby, homes? Um, we find, for example, in our racial and ethnic minority populations that individuals can't really travel too far outside of their area because they don't have transportation or because they're working two and three jobs already. So making testing available is important so that people can isolate and take appropriate public health measures. Integrating the community members into efforts has been critical. I know that here at Stanford and I know at UCSF, we have been trying to integrate um, our community engagement groups within our own hospital efforts to do testing, education, and even vaccination, um, as well as general health care for all of our community members. Um, and making sure that health insurance is not a necessary way to access um, interventions. So um, giving uh, appropriate support to people who may be under or uninsured is critical. And those federally qualified health centers are a good start, but we all need to be aware uh, that some people just don't have access to uh, resources because of their insurance status. This is a slide that I use in my uh, role as Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Diversity. And this can be used for many different areas. And this is a um, COVID-19 uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion action framework that can be used for any other. You can substitute COVID-19 for any other subject. But really, it's kind of an iterative process. So first, you would need to make culturally relevant decisions. And the only way you can really do that is to ask questions from the groups uh, that have these disparities. Um, it's not helpful for somebody to make up, sorry for the typo there, it's not helpful for that group, uh, for anybody to make up what they think a particular community needs without input from that community themselves because we can be frequently way off target. So we need to ask strategic questions, empower a team and a strategy group to really ask the proper questions and ground solutions uh, for diverse groups, keeping in mind that many times there will be unified solutions, but sometimes there will be distinct solutions for specific groups. Um, again, then the second step is really supporting our diverse communities, basic needs. And again, in the academic model, we're looking at students, faculty, and staff, but we can certainly use this for our key stakeholders in our diverse communities. Providing emotional and mental health support, we know that we're all burned out at this point, that does not help us maintain the, the necessary um, uh, actions that we need to do to keep ourselves from getting COVID or from keeping ourselves uh, from being exposed. And mental health is critical and it's been under-recognized as an issue that we need to deal with. 
Uh, we need to clarify next steps as well. And then the next piece is to communicate thoughtfully and inclusively with our community stakeholders, with empathy to clarify the big picture. We do a lot of town halls. I was on a couple of town halls last night with Sam Ricardo, the mayor of San Jose, and parents from different schools. One was in English and the other one was in Spanish. So even though it took us three hours to get through all of this, we reached um, over 500 people who needed to hear messaging in their own terms um, and answer their questions in different languages. So this is the kind of thing that you need to follow through with. And then if you can, you can try to establish inclusive excellence you know, using a digital leadership foundation. That is all of your senior leadership can get together and really understand how to build messaging in a way that reaches all of your stakeholders. And then you have to start again. You go back to one because as situation changes, you need to go back and start the process over again because these are not static models. They need to keep evolving to meet the needs of our populations. So let's end with uh, some issues around COVID vaccines and how equity considerations uh, were used to get to the point where we are now and what is planned for the future. So the CDC, um, since last summer, we had been involved with many, many meetings with CDC and the ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that makes uh, vaccine guidance for the U.S. And up at the top, you see the major uh, allocation uh, considerations. That is, the science has to drive everything. But ethics need to be the foundation of how that science is implemented, and then implementation measures have to be appropriate for many, many populations. So when we look at ethics, for example, um, the ethical considerations were really built to identify groups for early allocation based on, uh, in, especially in a setting that, that we're seeing now that we anticipated of constrained supply. So how do you build an equitable distribution when you have constrained supply? Um, and how do you do that in an, on a national as well as a local scale? And then implementation really needs to value the target group and has to be feasible. So you can see how all three of these are important, um, but they need to be tailored at a national level, uh, not only from a national level, but down to the local level as well. So ethical principles endorsed five interim principles that we looked at back in September, including maximizing benefits and minimizing harms, equity, justice, fairness, and transparency. Um, exploring the possible groups for phase one. Um, and as you all know, the way we started with vaccine allocation was healthcare personnel um, and then moving on to essential healthcare workers. Um, and then the uh, an additional group that was added to phase 1A were people over 75. And um, I'll, we'll talk about how that allocation happened and why it happened. Um, again, just to remind you the ethical principles that we saw before. Uh, the five, meaning maximizing benefits, minimizing harms, promoting justice, mitigating health inequities, and promoting transparency. Um, and then they built justice um, and, and, act, and really built action phrases into that framework. Um, this is what the CDC generally uses, which is an evidence to recommendation. That is, what are the different domains that one needs to consider when you're looking at equity uh, for any product, especially for vaccines? So the one was public health, pro what is the public health problem? What are the benefits and harms? Uh, what are the values that we uphold? 
What's the acceptability of the intervention, the feasibility, the resource use, and then equity. And all of these questions need to be asked. In this case, the vaccine was the intervention um, and the problem is COVID-19 disease. And all of these questions were asked for many different groups across the US and we took in public health, uh, sorry, public comment from all around the country in order to understand what people needed and how best to roll out vaccines, especially in an early uh, constrained phase. And this is what ultimately was developed. We went through many, many models to get to this point, and I will lay out what they are. So we started and we uh, started up, as you all know, with phase 1A, and these are color-coded. So phase 1A included people 75 years and above, people who live and work in long-term care facilities, and healthcare providers. And why were these picked? Well, it turns out that people in long-term care facilities and people 75 years and above account for 60 to 80% of all hospitalizations and deaths in the US from COVID-19. So from an equity lens, we thought we needed to stop mortality and hospitalizations first, the highest risk. And that was a way of really reducing deaths and hospitalizations in the most rapid fashion by between 60 and 80%. So that was thought to be the most important equity angle, as well as the healthcare providers. And we felt uncomfortable because many of us are healthcare providers making this decision, but we thought that we needed to maintain our healthcare systems in order to take care, not only of the COVID-19 cases that have been coming in, but also the strokes, the heart attacks, the broken bones, other trauma, any other underlying conditions that really needed to be dealt with in the midst of a COVID pandemic uh, with healthcare providers that could be there ready and waiting to take care of those problems. So these were the two major groups, including the long-term care facility residents in phase 1A. Phase 1B included frontline workers because we know that our essential frontline workers are important, such as people, for example, in the transportation industry, people at grocery stores, agricultural workers, et cetera, and, and first responders. Um, and then phase one, uh, uh, 1C included essential, and we're in this category here in California at this point, which is essential workers, uh, more of our additional frontline workers, uh, but in addition, again, as I said, agricultural workers um, and others um, who are front-facing and providing important responsibilities such as utility workers, water service workers, people who provide uh, resources for us to maintain a normal way of life, as well as 16 to 64 year olds who have high risk medical conditions. And you can see that the number of people in each group was also laid out over the United States. So you can see this is a very large group, over 110 million people or about 30% of our US population. And so, this is where we are now and why we may be seeing uh, a, a lack, a lower access to vaccines uh, at this point, because we are opening up vaccination to a larger group of people. But we did definitely go through a risk tier for all of this. And then the next group we'll get to here, this phase two, is everybody else, 16 to 64, without high-risk conditions, when we have adequate vaccine for them. And then at some point, we'd like to also get to our children. And if I have time, I'll talk about them. So um, oh, actually, here we are. Um, so when we look at children, 
Um, we know that children do not act, they're not little adults, and we hear that all the time. But one of the things about children very early on is we found that uh, children were less likely to have symptoms of related to COVID infection. And the symptoms included fever, cough, and shortness of breath, as they did with adults, but they were less commonly reported than among adults. So children were just less likely to be as sick as adults. In addition, children with certain underlying conditions might be more likely to have severe illness, including asthma or chronic lung disease, diabetes, other underlying genetic, neurologic, or metabolic conditions, sickle cell disease, heart disease, congenital heart disease, immunosuppression, medical complex, complex conditions, and obesity. And it's really striking to see the next table because when you look at this, you see that 52% of children under 18 who are hospitalized with COVID had an underlying condition, but you see that the biggest by far underlying condition was obesity. Almost 40% of those children hospitalized with COVID-19 had obesity as their only or one of their, one of their um, underlying conditions and frequently it was the only condition. Asthma was second, but really almost four times less likely to be associated with disease. Obviously, there are many conditions that lead to risk, but um, we really need to keep this into in account when we are talking about treating and preventing disease in our children. This is an interesting slide. It's a little bit complicated, but let me walk you through it. Each color represents an underlying condition. The green is hypertension. The light blue is diabetes. Purple is dementia, etc. And each of these has an age group going from zero all the way to 85 years of age. So you can see for hypertension, the risk goes up of COVID fatality or COVID deaths by age. Um, diabetes goes up by age, but then drops off in older age groups. Dementia is really striking because it really tends to be much more important in people 75 and above. Um, and that may be because that's a, a highest risk group for dementia. Heart disease and lung disease are more spread out. And obesity, as I mentioned earlier, is much more common as a risk factor in the very in the younger populations. So these are the strategies that were used to try to really develop the vaccination approach, but also can be helpful in education of individuals to keep them at risk from getting infected in the first place. So what are our U.S. efforts for uh, tri trials uh, for vaccines for special populations? Now, the goal in the U.S. is SARS-CoV-2 vaccines for all of our U.S. population. The U.S. government will provide resources for vaccine trials, for example, for pregnant women and children. Those studies are ongoing now. Stanford is going to be a site uh, coming up in April for vaccine trials in children as well. Uh, companies will be involved, and, and uh, but with the oversight of the U.S. government partners that we've always worked with and will jointly oversee the studies. This is just a brief overview of the three vaccines we currently have. The number of participants were in the tens of thousands, and we saw the efficacy from 66 to 95% to prevent disease, symptomatic disease, which is uh, a little misleading because actually the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which had a lower rate of vaccine efficacy, in fact, had a very high rate of prevention of severe, moderate to severe symptoms so most of the people who did get these cases actually had mild symptoms of disease and 100% prevention of hospitalizations and deaths for all three vaccines. So all of these vaccines are excellent. 
uh, the Johnson and Johnson has the added benefit of only needing one dose and not needing the ultra freeze requirements for storage that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines need. We also know that when you look here, the adolescent trials for the, the Pfizer vaccine are completely done. The Moderna vaccine is almost done with their teenage trials and the Johnson and Johnson studies will be starting shortly. And we are, as I mentioned, planning trials uh, for children in all of these. And Pfizer, uh, I think today will be announcing that they started today on their pediatric trials that is under the adolescent age group, uh, say the 12 to 15 year olds. We will be starting those trials in a few weeks, uh, not only in the 12 to 15 year olds, but even going as low eventually as six months to two years of age, depending on the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines. So we know we will be getting to children pretty soon. Um, I will skip this trial for now. And this is just an example of how complex the vaccine trials are in children. But as complicated as they may look, this is the way we do all of our pediatric vaccine trials. This is very common. Pediatricians and large companies know how to do trials in pediatric vaccine uh, uh, in populations. And what we have to do is generally start with full doses of vaccines in the trials for the older children and start with half doses or quarter doses as we get into younger age groups because we want to assure safety as well as effectiveness. So in summary, we have seen uh, over uh, 30 million cases now of COVID-19 in the US with over half a million deaths. But equity must be an essential consideration in distribution of vaccines and therapy and resources, especially when supplies are constrained. Risk for disease and complications must be considered in equitable allocation. And social determinants of health, as we've seen, can and do influence risk of infection, hospitalization, and death. So I will stop there, and I thank you so much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.